You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look especially at how we perceive things, how we look at things. Uh, I watched, uh, or listened to, and watch, I listened to a fascinating program on Radio 4. So this is real geek territory, so I apologize for those of you who are not into this at this particular moment in time. There's a guy called, a philosopher called Bishop Barclay, and Melvin Bragg was discussing uh, Bishop Barclay with some guests. And when I started listening to it, I thought, this guy was crazy. He was an Anglican bishop in Ireland in the 18th century, and Bishop Barclay was a philosopher who argued that material things don't really exist. That it's all down to perception. It's how you perceive them. And I listened to this and I thought, oh, that would be dead easy to argue against that. But I listened to the program for 45 minutes and at the end I was almost convinced. Uh, I was actually in the garden at the time with headphones on. And I was almost convinced that what I was digging didn't really exist. It was just all in the mind. The weeds are not there, they're in the mind. Um... But think about it for a minute, how you perceive things. The chairs are red, but how do you know they're red? Are they red because they're red, or are they red because your eyes see them as red? When you start thinking like that, it kind of messes your head up a wee bit. And I know you've got enough problems without having to think about stuff like that. But how we perceive things is really, really important. This week there was news about um, them discovering the first milliseconds of the Big Bang, the, the ripple, the waves, and so on. It's a fantastic discovery. And some people wrote me and said, there you go, that proves it, there is no God. And other people wrote me and said, isn't it fantastic? It proves that the Bible is right. Because, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that the universe had a beginning. And uh, in scientists about... If you were a scientist a hundred years ago, you probably, if you weren't a Christian or a Muslim, you probably believed that the universe didn't have a beginning, that it was material is always there. So when we hear that there was a Big Bang, and that the universe did have a beginning, and you read in the scriptures that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the kind of science affirms your faith. But then if you have a different perception, it seems to go the other way. I was in a debate a couple of weeks ago, and I finished the debate, and being incredibly humble, I thought, I did brilliant, I knocked that guy stone dead. And uh, I was, you know, and then I get all these other perceptions. Oh, you were a complete idiot, or you were this, and you were that. And you think, how do people see the same thing in such different ways? Because we all have different perceptions. Now, what we're looking at just now, what we're going to look at, is Paul has been writing to the Christians in a place called Corinth. And there have been some troubles in the church, some difficulties in the church. And Paul has been speaking about what has been happening to him in terms of his health. He's been speaking about some of the opposition he's faced within the church. And he's talked about death. And he's talked about, um, he's absolutely convinced of the resurrection and so on. And he talks about how Jesus has died for all so that those who live should live for him. And we read at verse, oh, in chapter 5 and verse 16, it's on page 1161 of the Pew Bible. 
<clears throat> so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once regarded Christ in this way we do so no longer and he's referring back to the discussion that he's been having about death and about we appear before the judgment seat of Christ and how uh, about the love of Christ and having done that he says okay now we're going to look at things in a slightly different way and I want to suggest to you that how you feel today and what you do today depends on how you view things and how you see things and the perspective that you have and in the verses that we look at Paul is going to show us an, a new perspective if you like um, for those of you who are theologically literate it's not that new perspective it's a different one but for those of you who are not don't worry this is a new perspective when we look at G who Jesus Christ is when we look at ourselves when we look at God when we look at other people so first of all let's look at what he says about Christ he says from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once regarded Christ in this way we do so no longer before Paul became a Christian he judged Christ in a particular way he saw him as being a rebel he saw him as being a false teacher he saw him as being a troublemaker and his disciples the Christians even worse so much so that he persecuted them maybe Paul had some kind of idea of what the Messiah should be like but I think what Paul is saying here is very simple he's saying this was all wrong my eyes were shut but now they are opened I once was blind but now I see why did Paul change his mind what happened to him those of you who know the story will know that he had this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus and uh, he then had someone come and explain to him about who Jesus was he, he actually then literally went blind he was blind because he couldn't see who Christ was he met Christ and literally went blind and then God sent a man to to pray with him and to take the blindness from him it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous picture most of you when you go home from this church are, are not going to be struck blind as you have an encounter with Jesus you might say oh well I wish I wish I would I, I actually don't think you do wish that but all of us need to have a completely different perspective so that we can understand who Jesus is John 10 verse 38 Jesus says if I do it even though you do not believe me believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father Jesus was claiming to be God and it was a claim that got him crucified it was a claim that astonished people and it was a claim that was so amazing that many people just didn't, didn't even hear it and I know that there are people who are here there are people in our community there are people around us we say we are Christians we follow Christ they well who's Christ who's Jesus we don't see it we don't understand we don't get it some Greeks came to Andrew one of the disciples and said sir we want to see Jesus that is the most important perspective that you will you will ever grasp you will ever get hold of I hear about Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done 
I read his word, and I'm utterly amazed, and I'm utterly astonished. Someone else may look at about Jesus and go, that's horrible, that's terrible. Because they don't see who Jesus is. They don't see the beauty of Christ. They don't see the character of Jesus Christ. And I just simply ask, how do you look at Christ? From now on, he says, we, we, we once regarded Christ in this worldly way, but not anymore. We don't judge him by this world's standards anymore. Instead of judging Christ by my world, Paul says, I am now judging my world by Christ, by what he sees. And that has a big impact upon him, because he then goes on to say, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. How do we look at ourselves? What do we think about ourselves? And that's a very, also a very important question. Who are you? I uh, was at the Free Church Youth Conference yesterday, and in their foolishness, they'd asked me to do a seminar on Christians and politics and the independence referendum. Well, I was completely unbiased, and uh, I, it was really, really interesting, because I asked them all at the beginning of the seminar, okay, tell me you're voting yes, are you voting no, or do you not know yet? And then we talked about, who are you? Why are you voting this way, either yes or no? And the whole question of identity came up. Who are you? Are you identified by your nationality? What does it mean to be Scottish? What does it mean to be English? What does it mean to be Chinese? What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be Dundonian? What does it mean to be part of your family? There's, uh, I was offered, you know, you get these horrendous internet adverts because of course people go on and they get all this information about you and obviously my name is Robertson and I keep getting plagued with adverts for t-shirts that say things like it's a Robertson thing or Robertson made in 1962 or you know being a Robertson is so cool and they go well what does that mean what does it mean you're, if I would say to any of my children remember you're a Robertson how do, how, how do we identify ourselves how do we think about ourselves? Well, for most of us, I think sometimes at least we are aware of who we are and we don't like a lot of who we are. We really don't like. We would like to change. We would like things to be different. Paul looked at himself before in a particular way. He was a Pharisee. He was a a religious scholar. He'd been to the top university. He was pretty well in the elite of society. He looked at himself in a particular way. When he came to know Jesus Christ, he looked at himself in a very different way. He said, I am the chief of sinners. Everything had been made new for him. Isaiah 65, 17, one of the promises from the Old Testament. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. What I love about this idea is that When you become a Christian, your perspective on yourself changes because you realize that you have become part of the new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Becoming a Christian is like coming out of a dream. You wake up, you blink, and there is a new reality. I know that 
people tend to think of it the other way around. They tend to think, well, here I am, I'm, I'm in the real world, and I'm, um, if I was to become religious, whatever religion, then that would be like going into a dream. I'd be denying reality. But Paul says, when you get the different perspective, when you get this new perspective, you look at yourself not as being just who you are, but as being in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. That's why, for example, uh, if I'm talking with somebody who wants to discuss and argue about, well, what do you think about homosexuality? I can't talk about it directly in the way that they want because very often, particularly if they themselves have suffered a great deal of homophobic bullying or stuff like that at school or even through the church, they'll, they'll say, they'll identify themselves by their sexuality. So they say, that's me, I am, that's what I am, that's who I am. Do you know, the Christian doesn't identify ourselves by our heterosexuality or our homosexuality or whatever. The Christian says, I am in Christ. I am a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, there's a sense in which we strain towards that. There's a paradox. There's a a conflict within. Uh, And if you read Romans, Romans 7 and Romans 8, you'll see that. There's the now, but there's the not yet. But nonetheless, the reconciliation Conciliation of creation has already begun. We are being remade and renewed. Now, to some who are Christians, that's a difficult concept because you just basically don't feel brand new. You feel worn out and struggling. We'll come on to that in a moment. But to some who are not Christians, this doesn't make sense because that's not how you perceive yourself. What if you're not in this position? What if you're not the new creation? Well, you are an enemy of God. Now, people don't like to hear that. I got a message this week from someone who said, personally, if there's a God, he knows that I'm a good person overall. Yes, I've done some bad things that I'm not proud of, but in the end, the good outweighs the bad. And someone's saying, you know what they're saying? They're saying, if there's a God, then my perception of myself is what that God has to accept. And God comes along and he shatters that absolutely God looks at you and he says, it's not your perception that counts. Your perception is distorted. By definition, your perception is distorted. God's perception is clear and absolute and pure and holy. When you come, what is it? Robert Burns said, oh, that God would give us the gift to see ourselves as others see us. Well, let's go even a wee bit deeper than that. Oh, that God would give us the gift to see ourselves as he sees us. That changes everything. Absolutely changes everything. And here's the problem. The way that God sees you, maybe it's not the way that you feel, but it is the way that you are. It is that you are an enemy of God. And there is a barrier between you and God, and you need to be reconciled to him. Which brings us to the third question. All this is from God. How do you look at God? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. All this is from God. How do you view God? How do we perceive God? Here's my problem. I can't. 
I can't. I can't see God. I don't know what God is like. I can take all the arguments and all the philosophies and I can invent a, a God in my own image. How can I see God? Augustine spoke of how you have a, a physical sight and you have a spiritual sight. And you need a, a real spiritual sight. But how do we understand God? Many people have many different images. When I say to you, believe in God, all of you will have all different kinds of images. Varying from the, the old man sitting on the cloud to some kind of, of, of uh, overpowering Old Testament God as you perceive it to sort of Jesus as uh, the idol on the mantelpiece who's really, really nice. There are all different images that we have. But Paul says, here's a different perspective. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God so loved the world. There's a barrier between us and God, and God himself comes and overcomes that barrier. People do not find their way to God. God reconciles them to himself. Now, reconciliation, let's just think about that a minute. Why do we need reconciliation? Because we are God's enemies, because we have sinned against him, and yet this text says he doesn't count our sins against us. How does God do that? The image that some have is of God coming along and just putting his arm around us and saying, that's okay, you did some bad stuff, but I'll, I'll let you off with it. Just go off and be good. That kind of religion is a killer because it's not true, mainly, and it's very, very distorted and it distorts us. How can God have a law in the universe and then go against that, we go against it with no consequences because sin is against God's law? Would that not destroy all truth, justice, goodness and beauty? And it would. So then how does God reconcile us? And that is the beauty of verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God makes him to be sin. He takes Jesus, his son, and he makes him to be sin. Now that's a very heavy verse, and uh, I don't have enough time to go into all the ins and outs of it. But the simplest way is this. In the Old Testament, there was a system of sacrifice in which goats and bulls and so on were used and the idea of sins being laid on them. And it was a picture. It was an image. It's the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin. But it was a picture pointing forward to somebody who could. That was Jesus Christ. Christ became the sin offering from the Old Testament. Christ freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God was in Christ on the cross. God was placing the sin of the world on himself. Our sins are not imputed to us. Christ's righteousness is. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. It's God who reconciles. Another one, Colossians 1.19. God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
the whole heart and the whole essence of the gospel is that the world is screwed up, is that we are screwed up, and that we can't fix it. The only person who can fix it is God. How does God fix it, if you like, without destroying us? How does God remain just? He does so by taking the wrong that we have done and the punishment that we deserve and placing it on his son and punishing his son in our stead, in our place. Our sin is given to Christ and his righteousness, his goodness is given to us. And that's what reconciliation is. If sin caused disruption in the world and this chaos that we see in the world, how can that be restored? It can only be restored because it's in so deep if that process is reversed. And it's only reversed through the cross. And that's what this reconciliation means. Now, let me say something here about how people misuse the Bible. Isn't reconciliation a wonderful thing? You know, isn't that great? You have a couple who split up and they've been fighting with each other. And they reconcile. Isn't that marvelous? You've got a, a, a son who's not been talking to his mother for 20 years and they reconcile. Isn't that fantastic? You've got um, two groups of people who are just fighting each other. Wouldn't we want peace and reconciliation, let's say in Syria or in Israel? or Afghanistan, Burundi, uh, Rwanda, Northern Ireland, Dundee. We'd won reconciliation. Isn't that a really, really good thing? And some people take this verse about reconciliation and say, we've got the message of reconciliation. And what they do is they say, it's like God coming to us and saying, come on, get over it. Get on with each other. Kiss and make up. Just forgive each other. Just love each other. And we say, well, that's the message of the gospel. It's the message of peace. And we all love that. And it all makes us feel good. Except for me, it makes me feel awful. And here's why. Because I can't do it. I just can't do it. And human beings, that's not the way that we are. Because there's something in that's too deep. Our hearts are too hard. Our relationships are too broken. We are broken people. So what Paul is saying here is... If you just say the gospel message is let's all be nice and have peace with one another, you're misunderstanding. The gospel message is you are broken, you are broken. And that's why you need reconciliation, first of all, between you and God, before you can have reconciliation with others. If our relationship with God is healed, then out of that flows every other healing. Now, that's not saying that if you become a Christian, suddenly everything is great and everyone loves you and you love everyone and it's peace, love and understanding and we're all on our way to some kind of hippie paradise. That, that's not what is being said. What is being said is this, is as you get reconciled with God, then your life is renewed, you are a new creation and these other relationships can begin to unravel the pain that's in them. And you can, they, they can be healed and they can be sorted. Some may be instantaneously, but most not. The new creation takes time to work out. Now, I don't want to say that reconciliation with, between, non, between people is unimportant. It is. The vertical, that is our relationship with God, is evidenced by and leads to the horizontal. It's the mark of the Christian community. 
That's why Jesus says, Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Don't do it, he says. Don't worship. Don't. Praise. First go, and then be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. We forgive because we are forgiven. We love because we are loved. If we do not forgive and we do not love, then what are we saying? We're either saying we're not forgiven and we're not loved, or we're saying that we don't perceive. We don't see our forgiveness and our love. Because God has forgiven me, I should be able to forgive everybody else. And it's not easy. It's not easy. This is not trite and it's not trivial. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it is important that we are reconciled to one another. And I'll tell you this, if you're a Christian, you have no hope of making progress in the Christian life if you are harboring bitterness or resentment towards anybody. They may be entirely 100% in the wrong. They may have done the most awful thing. But... We have to learn to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean to say we let people walk all over us, and there's a whole load of caveats that you can put in there. But I'm concerned here about this whole aspect of reconciliation. And we have to be prepared at least to be reconciled. One other question. How do we look at other people? Going back to verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I love that the old translation is, we regard no man after the flesh. And this is important for those of us who are Christians. It is not someone's status, someone's wealth, someone's fame, someone's look that impress us about people. We recognize that both believers and unbelievers need to be reconciled to God. We, as believers, we continually go on being reconciled. Paul, I think, has a wonderful perception. He no longer sees people as they are in this sinful world, but he sees them as what they could be in Christ. He sees the new creation and the new world. Sometimes people might, if you're in a really good mood, you might want to think, saying, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And then you wake up. And you see all the junk and all the rubbish and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the hurt. And you think to yourself, what a pathetic and useless world. That's not the Christian position. The Christian position is neither of those. The Christian position is that it is pathetic and useless and yet Christ has come and God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And suddenly you see people and you see that in tremendous ugliness and instead of seeing the ugliness, you see the beauty that could come out of that ugliness. You have this tremendous love for people. And that's what should drive us in our communication of the gospel, not guilt. I just wonder if you're a Christian, if you ever get that great burden. You're sitting having a meal with someone, and you really, really like them. You really like them. And then you look at them, and you see them as lost. And that's not a dinner table conversation. You're in there, you know, tucking into your venison or whatever, and you're saying... Uh, by the way, I need to tell you that you're lost. But you see it. And you feel it. And you really feel it. And it's so overwhelming that you want to run away from it. That you'd prefer to do evangelism at a distance. That you'd prefer to go out in the street and give someone a track. And then retreat into your church. That you'd prefer to, to do something on, on, online. You'd prefer to hide behind a keyboard. You don't want to be with people and, and, and love them. 
because it hurts. It really, really, really hurts. But don't run away from it. Instead of running away from it, and instead of running away from them, we run to Christ. We go home and we pray, Lord, have mercy on these people. I love these people. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. I met with Andy Burns this week, and Andy does um, fantastic work in kind of street pastor outreach. And uh, all the, the clubs in Dundee have just asked them to become official chaplains. Now, he's only able at the moment to do one of the clubs. I think it's Fat Sam's, and uh, there's, there's a few of the others that one or two of you might know. And we were just talking about what he was doing, and he was... And, and the group of people that he has there. I'm going to get Andy to come and say some of this to ourselves and himself. And he was telling me about the number of people that they've met on the bridge who are just about to jump, who they've stopped jumping. And he was saying, Dave, on a Friday night, he mentions one club in particular that he says they call the Schemey Club. And he said, you have no idea the absolute degradation and pain and brokenness in people. And he says it's completely overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming. How do you look at people? We don't see them as the world sees people. We don't see a person lying in the gutter in their own urine as the world sees people. We don't see the screaming mum yelling at her kids in Tesco's as the world sees people. We have to see everyone as made in the image of God as broken but able to be restored. And that's why he says that we are Christ's ambassadors. He's committed to us this message of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Oh, that's no use if he doesn't tell people. Well, how does God tell people? That's where you and I come in if we are Christians. How did we first hear? Not many people here had an angel come to you, did you? Unless it was in a very good disguise. You didn't. How many people had a dream and a vision? Maybe some. Not many, though. Most of us, it was another person telling us about Jesus. And he says that's what we are. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. The great message of God's reconciliation is not placed in the hands of angels, but in ours. We are ambassadors. Incidentally, we're not salesmen. We're not doing a pitch. We're not saying, okay, and if if you're here as a non-Christian, I'm not trying to sell you something. I'm an ambassador announcing good news that God has come. And we implore people to be reconciled to God on Christ's behalf. Now, I think this is a completely amazing and mind-blowing thought. Forget about thinking whether red exists or not. Think of this instead. You are the ambassador of Christ, and when you plead with people to turn to Jesus, it is Jesus who is pleading with them. Oh, if only Jesus would come and speak to me. He is. That's exactly what he's doing. No one will be able to say, well, Jesus, you never asked me. Jesus, you never told me. You say, yeah, I did. I spoke through my people. And that's why you need passion. Not because your passion will convince people, but you need passion because it shows that you have the heart of Christ. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. 
And Jesus didn't stand on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem and go, well, I'm God and I know what's going to happen and I can handle it and I'm cool with this and I've decided and everything's going to work out fine. He didn't do that. He stood over Jerusalem and he wept and he wept. He stood at the grave of Lazarus and he wept even though he knew what was going to happen. How hard-hearted are we that we, that we know We run away from it. We want to hide from it. But we know, we see the brokenness. And we're as bad as non-Christians because we retreat into this fake world, this unreal world, this world of television and, 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 you know, false emotions. Because we can't handle real emotions. Because we're really scared to love people in case it hurts us. But we have to do that. Why? Because we believe in a God who regenerates, a God who brings new life, and a God who reconciles. And for me personally, I just look at this city. I just just go, let me out of here. I'm off to Edinburgh, which is full of sinners as well. They're just posher ones. That's all. I'm going to Glasgow. They're not so posh sinners. You know, or or, or I'm, I'm, I'm heading somewhere else. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. There's just too much pain. There's just too much hurt. I need a new start. And God says, I've given you a new start. I've given you. A new creation. Now live in the dirt. Live in the filth. Don't condemn people. Don't judge people. Love people. And bring them this fantastic message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You go to the drug addict. You go to the woman who's sexually promiscuous. You go to the young homosexual man. You go to the old, bitter, cynical person. And you say, I have good news for you. And feel it. So they at least feel your reality and your passion. Let's just return to finish with how we look at ourselves. Romans 5. Since now... We have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I particularly say this to those of us who are Christians. I don't quite get that verse, to be honest. If we've been reconciled by his death, how much more will will we be saved through his life? And this is the understanding I have of it. And I'm willing to accept there's a whole lot more. There's a depth in here that's probably beyond me at this time. And I think it's just simply this. If Jesus died for me and saved me, and he now lives, and he lives for me, why should I be afraid or worried about anything? Why should I be obsessed with what others think? I'm his ambassador. I'm here to bring reconciliation. And I think the solution for those of us who are believers is in in all the troubles and difficulties and pains and sorrows that we have, which still exist for us, is, is really to look at Christ. I just think it's extraordinary. How how will you ever grasp God made him who had no sin? to be sin for us. How will you grasp that? The purity of Jesus, and yet he took all the ugliness of my sin. And then all the beauty of Jesus, and I'm suddenly righteous. How is that possible? And yet it is. 
That's the wonder of the gospel. The fear of the Lord, the wonder of the gospel, the reconciling grace of God, the certainty that his word cannot return to him void. That should inspire you more than anything to seek to communicate the good news. You know, I hate it when people say, well, we'll have to go out and evangelize because our church is declining. I hope your church dies, if that's your attitude. I really do. It doesn't deserve to continue. It's not about filling the church. It's about there are all these broken people and God has come in Christ to save. And he said to us, you share in this. You help. Calvin says, beware then of placing even the smallest drop of your confidence on anything apart from the gospel. Those of us who are believers, please bear that in mind. And those of us who are not yet there, you come to Christ for reconciliation and you keep coming. Be reconciled to God and become his ambassadors. Let's pray. Lord, how can we know anything? How can we perceive what is real and what is not real? Things we were once so sure of now seem so shaky. We within ourselves struggle with so many things. But your word is sure and it is certain. And your grace is eternal. And your mercy is everlasting. Your love is so deep and so wide and so high that in all eternity we will never comprehend it. Lord, help us to feel that. Help us to know that. Help us not to rely on our own understanding, not to lean on our understanding, but to lean on you, to lean on your word, to trust what you say to us. It is a thought beyond all wonders that you so loved us, that you gave your Son, that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself, that this broken and twisted and sick and perverted world, that this bruised and battered heart and mind, that this frail and weak body, you sent your Son to die that we might be healed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be restored. Oh God, have mercy on us for not appreciating and understanding that. Enable us to see it. And Lord, if there is anyone here who this morning is at enmity with you, is against you, doesn't see you, Lord, open their eyes and let them see Jesus. And for those of us who do, those of us who acknowledge faith in you. Oh God, forgive us for our trivialities and our superficiality and do within us a deep, deep, deep work that we would be almost so overwhelmed that we would cry out to you, Lord, stop it. We can't take it. No more. Lord, help us to see your love and to feel your love a little bit, at least, for our neighbors and the people in this city and the people in, in Germany and Burundi and throughout the world. Lord, give us your heart and enable us to live joyfully for you, reconciled, ransomed, healed, 
restored and forgiven. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.